Well, when our kids were little and we would read them stories or watch a movie together, one of them would inevitably ask, uh, good guy or bad guy? Did your kids do this? Good guy, bad guy. Every story, they've got to figure out who's good guy, who's bad guy. Well, it's instinctual. It's in us. It's no doubt part of the moral compass that's still semi-functional in us fallen human beings made in God's image. We fairly early on know that there are good guys and bad guys out there, and that's how stories work. But it doesn't take too long before the answer to the question, good guy or bad guy, gets more complicated. It's not always clear in some stories, is it? It's not cut and dry, not black and white. Sometimes the protagonist in the story is a rather shady character who happens to be only slightly better than the antagonist. As you get older, you can actually get so familiar with complexity in characters, in complex stories, that you don't even realize sometimes that you're cheering for a thief to not get caught only until you notice that you are cheering for a thief to not get caught, and then you begin to wonder what's going on up there. And then many of us, even as adults, we have those moments where we find ourselves reverting back to the black and white, the cut-and-dry character assessment of our childhood. I'll tell a story on my daughters. I don't think they'll mind. Each of our three girls has gone away to the same Christian college in Louisville, Kentucky. And I think each of them, at one point, fairly early in their collegiate days, has called or texted good old dad to ask for some insight on something they're learning in a theology class or church history class. Something about a movement or a theological debate and the players involved. And so they're calling dad to ask about this or that theologian. Is he good guy or bad guy? Was Thomas Aquinas good guy or bad guy? Was John Wesley good guy or bad guy? Was Karl Barth good guy or bad guy? Is N.T. Wright good guy or bad guy? Now, you don't have to know any of those names to probably guess my answer. I said, well, it's complicated. Let me tell you some of the good things, and let me tell you some of the not-so-good things. And I smiled, because here we are again, doing good guy, bad guy. Now, if you're that type of person who still leans toward good guy, bad guy analysis, well, today's parable is going to cause you to grimace and shake your head and give you some fits before you finally get some clarity on it. And if you're the type of person that loves complex characters and complex stories where the ethical lines get blurry, well, boy, do I have a parable for you. Turn to Luke 16 with me in your Bibles. Luke 16. And by the way, we're skipping some parables in this series of Luke's parables. Let me briefly explain why. The parable in Luke 14 will actually get covered at our Lord's Supper this coming Wednesday. It's fitting to talk about the great banquet before we partake of the Lord's Supper. As for the parables in Luke 15, there are three of them. They're fairly well-known. The most well-known is the prodigal. 
And if you go to our website and you look under Luke 15, you'll find several different messages on those three parables that we've done over the years. They're, they're covered, uh, they're familiar, and just the, the very nature of this series and the limited number of weeks that we have means that we're doing a limited number of parables. And so we're in Luke 16 today. As we come to the parable of what some call the dishonest manager, or better, we could say he's the shrewd manager. Let me read from Luke 16, verses 1 to 15. What we have is the parable, and then some teaching from Jesus out of the parable, and then an interaction with the Pharisees based on all this. Verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much." If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, makes a passing but important comment about the writings of the Apostle Paul. He says some things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. So it should be encouraging to every Christian who desires to know more of the Word of God and sometimes finds trouble that even Peter sometimes found some scriptural writings to be hard to understand. And you might find comfort this morning to find out that all the great New Testament scholars who write commentaries on Luke, they almost universally agree that this parable is the most difficult of all Jesus' parables to understand. 
And so if you found yourself scratching your head as I read this passage, don't worry, you're not alone. The scholars find it a bit of a head-scratcher. This preacher finds it a bit of a head-scratcher. But I think after we scratch our heads and work our way through the words, I think we'll find that it's a little clearer than perhaps we thought. But let's just start with what it is. Let's call it a perplexing parable. That's the first of three points. A perplexing parable. It is perplexing. Now, interestingly, it is not really a mystery about what happens in the parable. The story is told by Jesus in a really straightforward way. It's not shrouded in mystery or told to us in a, in a code. It's not like many parables that have all kinds of symbolism. Many parables, those different elements of the story, all represent different things, like the four soils. Well, the difficulty here with our parable is... In fact, that it's fairly straightforward, but we think that it can't possibly teach what it seems to teach. Jesus couldn't possibly have said what I think he just said. That doesn't mean what it looks like it says it means. Well, let's review and talk about the story to make sure we know what actually is happening on the ground of the story. You see, in ancient Near East, a wealthy individual would have his estate, his wealth, his enterprises, all managed by a trusted and highly capable individual called a manager. You could think CEO and CFO combined. Well, this rich owner in the story finds out one day that his manager has been doing a very poor job. The details aren't given, only that he was wasting the owner's wealth, verse 1. And that word wasting, it's the same word as in the prodigal parable where he was, he was squandering his father's inheritance. So the master, in the parable of Luke 16, he called his manager in and he confronted him and the conversation was rather quick. The manager didn't apparently defend himself. Perhaps he couldn't defend himself. And so he was fired. It was immediately that the manager began to ponder, what shall I do now? I'm not good at digging. I'm too proud to beg. What shall I do? He began racking his brain, and then it hit him. I've got it. In the brief span of time between being informed that he was fired and then actually being terminated, like, you know, hand over the books, get out of the office, you're escorted out of the building, he decides to take his master's books and ledgers and to meet with those who owe the master money. He meets with one guy, he says, how much you owe my master? He says, a hundred measures of oil. He says... Here, write 50, 50% off the debt. He says to another, how much do you owe him? A uh, hundred, what is it, measures of wheat, verse 7. All right, write 80, 20% discount. And apparently these were massive amounts in these days. They make no sense to us, but these were massive amounts, hence they were massive debts, hence they were massive discounts. Can you imagine being on the other side of the table? And this manager says, you don't know that much anymore. Now you owe half as much or 20% less. 
man, you, you would you'd think, oh, thank you. I, I owe you. Now, some scholars suggest that something was going on here with interest on these loans or with the manager's cut regarding these loans. And some scholars suggest that, hence, this manager wasn't exactly stealing from his master. He was just making good business moves for all involved. Well, I'm not at all convinced by those attempts. Jesus himself says that this manager was a dishonest manager in verse 8. What he did was dishonest. What he did was wrong. What he did was stealing. It was sneaky. It was underhanded. It was self-serving. But it was shrewd. It was shrewd. Humanly speaking, not ethically, but humanly speaking, just as far as pragmatics go, it was a brilliant move on the chessboard of life. He would now have no problem gaining new employment with one of these debtors after his termination, but something even better happened. The master heard what the manager did. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What is shrewdness? I had to look it up to make sure. The Oxford English Dictionary says of the positive definition of shrewdness, it's being clever or keen-witted in practical affairs. The word can be positive or negative. We can speak of a shrewd criminal, or we can speak of a shrewd businessman. Bad guy, good guy, right? And the same is true in the Bible. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is the Greek word for the infamous description of Satan in the garden. Remember, he was crafty. Bad guy. But it's also the word that's often used in Proverbs for wisdom and being wise. Good guys. In the New Testament, the Greek word can be good or bad again. You can see Romans twelve sixteen. Do not be haughty. That's bad guy stuff. But Matthew 10, Jesus says, Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Well, this manager in Luke 16 wasn't harmless as a dove, but he was as wise as a serpent. He was shrewd. He made a move that would not only ingratiate himself to his master's competitors, but would have also ingratiated the master to those competitors and those debtors. You see, the debtors didn't know that the manager wasn't any longer representing his master. They had have no reason to know that. It's not public yet. He's not actually thrown out of the office yet. So when the master finds out what happened, what are the options here? Go through with the termination? Well, then this shrewd man will be scooped up by, the, by a competitor in a heartbeat. And then his shrewdness will benefit them, not me. Go through with the termination? Well, then the, the debtors are going to learn that it wasn't my idea. And I'm not as nice as they now think I am. 
And so he smiles, uh, he shakes his head, he says, I got to hand it to you, man, that was good, that is quite a move, I didn't see that coming. It was a brilliant chess move, humanly speaking, not ethically speaking. And that's the key. The owner wasn't commending the manager's dishonesty, but his ingenuity, his creativity, his timing, his shrewdness. His shrewdness was commended despite his dishonesty, not because of it. So this manager, is he good guy or bad guy? Well, he's both. He's a dishonest manager who was remarkably shrewd. And is that really that unusual? Is that really unfamiliar to us? Have you never been fascinated by the shrewdness of clever criminals in a movie? Am I the only one who loves watching perfectly executed heists? I love crime movies. I don't know why. I think it's in all of us, isn't it? Have have you never marveled at the audacity and creativity and ingenuity of the mob and drug lords and kingpins and jewel thieves? Well, we shouldn't marvel at those things in such a way that we want to join their ranks. We shouldn't marvel at those things in such a way that we no longer see the immorality in their actions. But... Jesus himself tells us that there's something for us to learn from them. Jesus, the Son of God, says you could learn a thing or two from them. He says in the second half of verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of light are Jesus' followers, Christians. They, just like everyone else, were born as sons of darkness, but by God's grace and through Jesus' death and resurrection and faith in him, they've been rescued by Jesus and they've been transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. They're now children of light because their Savior is the light. That's all good, real good. But Jesus says that his followers at times can be naive. They can be short-sighted. They can be, at times, a little too passive, uncreative, a little dull, a little less strategic than their worldly counterparts. Jesus says to his disciples, it's amazing, if not breathtaking, you could learn a thing or two from a shady businessman like this guy. Oh, not how to be shady, but to learn from his boldness and audacity and creativity and timing and strategery, as George W. used to say, his shrewdness. Well, that's the parable. And hopefully it's less perplexing now than it was when we first began. But then Jesus explains. Secondly, we see a proverbial explanation A proverbial explanation. It's proverbial, not that Jesus offers any advice from the book of Proverbs specifically, but what he says in verses 9 to 13 are proverb-like. 
They're proverbial. They are sayings of wisdom. They are axioms of truth related to the parable he just told. You see, verses 9 to 13, we've got five verses there. We've got five proverbial teachings which help us further understand and apply the parable, especially in verse 9. So we want to give careful attention to verse 9. One, because it's closest to the parable, explaining it the most, but also because it's the most confusing. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, i got to admit, by Tuesday of last week, I was still shaking my head at verse 9. And then I think, you know, you get enough clarity on it, and you can't see it any other way. It seems so obvious. So let me help you out. Let's start with the word friends in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves. Who are these friends that we're to make? Well, friends, that's a word that has occurred four times in the previous two chapters in Luke. In chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, the parable that we'll see at our Lord's Supper service on Wednesday, there, friends have been invited to the great banquet to celebrate friends. And then in the three parables that we find in chapter 15, remember all parables related to something being lost and then being found, in each case, after the thing is found, there is a great celebration with friends. In each of the parables, friends are celebrating what was lost is now found. So it's probably safe to assume that friends in our chapter mean something similar. It's those who celebrate with us that the lost has been found. They're fellow Christians. And notice at the end of verse 9, it says that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's heaven. So we're talking about friends one day in heaven. Friends who welcome us in. Friends that we have made. Jesus says make friends. But he also says make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. What's that? Well, unrighteous wealth doesn't mean ill-gotten gain. It doesn't mean drug money or the like. It just means worldly wealth. It just means unspiritual currency. It means the money of this world, money and stuff. So Jesus is saying, use your money and your stuff to gain friends for the kingdom. That money and stuff will fail. Notice that. It will fail. It will end. When you end, you can't take it with you. But while you have it, Use it for the gaining of eternal friends who will be in heaven to welcome you in and celebrate with you. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't he this kind of friend? He didn't pay for us to be his friends. He gave his life, the ultimate price, 
to make us his friends. He said in John 15, verse 13, There is no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did on that cross. He died for our sins and guilt. He took our place and he took our punishment. And he made us, through faith, his friends. We're not just forgiven if we believe, but we are, we're restored, we're reconciled, we're friends. And so now Jesus wants us, his friends, to do something similar for others. Not to die for them, not to make payment for their sins, but to give and to love and to care in a variety of ways so that when we meet again in heaven, it will not only be a sweet reunion, but they will thank us for what we did and what we gave and what we said that helps them, humanly speaking, enter into heaven. So when you get to heaven, believer, who will be there to greet you and welcome you and say, thank you? Will anyone thank you for your part in their voyage to the celestial city, however small of a part you played? How have you invested time and treasures and talents for people for heaven? Do you see how this verse, verse 9, connects to the parable? Verse 9 makes a further argument, a practical argument for gospel shrewdness. It points to the heavenly welcoming committee. It's essentially saying how big is your welcoming committee? You see, the world knows how to do something decisive and smart and quick and sharp in view of the future. And really for them, it's for themselves and it's for money. The world knows how to smartly turn something to, to see a payment on the other side. And so how much more should we, with heaven in view and friends in view? The world knows how to think about getting things done, analyzing. You see the men in the plane, not just men, women as well. I mean, they're, they're, I see them, they're emailing like crazy. They're the last ones to close the laptop. They're the first ones to get on the phone once it landed. Money, 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 money. I could learn a thing or two. I like watching movies on planes instead. Criminal movies, no doubt, right? <laughs> but think of it. Learn from criminals. The next time you watch a good criminal movie, here's your assignment Look for their strategery. Look for their shrewdness. We Christians could learn a thing or two about those opportunistic thieves that are always watching for the slightest opening in the window. And they do it for a little bit of this. And what we're after 
our friends in heaven that'll be there forever. That deserves gospel shrewdness. Let me just paint the picture and give some concrete examples of gospel shrewdness. Gospel shrewdness is when a young, successful, suburbanite family in Albuquerque decides to move to a North African city where there are only a few Christians and no churches. And they set up a business in a stealth-like way. Because they're not only there to help on a humanitarian level through that business, but they are there to share the gospel with others that they might become friends, eternal friends. That's shrewd. You know what's shrewd? When some Albuquerque engineers see a problem with unclean water down in Guatemala where we minister, and they invent a water filtration system and then bring it door to door to door to door to show that we not only care for your soul, but also for your body, but we also care for your soul. So let me tell you about Jesus. That's shrewd. Gospel shrewdness is when everyday Christians just think ten steps that are needed to get toward a gospel conversation with this friend or that coworker, because you, you don't want to just be obnoxious, and you know it's you want to show that you actually care and, and you can be their their friend. And so you think, how do we get there? How do the conversations go? How, what will I bring up next that we might one day get to something eternal, that we might be eternal friends in Jesus? Gospel shrewdness is a mom that knows that her little children are in an eternal investment and that her little ones could influence generations and thousands either for good or for ill. And so, teach him well. Gospel shrewdness is a businessman who loves to make more money so he can give more and share more. And he's good at it. It's a college student who sees their campus as their mission field. Or a skateboarder who sees the skate park as his mission field. Gospel shrewdness is local church elders who meet weekly at 6 a.m. for hours to pray and think and discuss and analyze and strategize about how to be more effective with gospel ministry. Gospel shrewdness is also just the routine sacrificial financial support of a local church that many of you give so faithfully. It astounds me that I, we meet a, a budget of almost $3 million just, just because you and I, we just, we just give to it. We just commit to give to it. There's some gospel shrewdness to that. We, we need gospel shrewdness to use that $3 million wisely. Gospel shrewdness is also financially supporting a church's fight, uh, facility expansion project. Ever heard of Next? Just go to dscabq.com slash next to learn more. 
Well, I shouldn't joke. Gospel shrewdness is giving to a church's facility renovation project, not because church buildings are eternal. They're not. Not because church buildings somehow save people. They can't. But because church buildings are convenient space for conversations and sermons and Bible studies and prayers where lives are changed. And I'm thankful for the gospel shrewdness of a group of men who led this church back decades ago to bring this building to bear for us to use today. We've used it well for the last couple decades. And we just need to we need to make some adjustments to, to use it better. I praise God for all the gospel shrewdness that I see in this church, and, and I want more of it. I mean, this passage just makes me excited. I want to go rob something. No, no, I'm just kidding. I don't. Too far. But I, I want to go do something big and strategic and outside the box for the kingdom of God that we talk about as friends in heaven in eternity. Well, Jesus goes on in the following verses, and we can deal with these more quickly because they're more clear. Verses 10 and following. Notice verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. You see, one who can be trusted in the handling of something small might then be trusted with something big. And here, when Jesus speaks of something that's very little, you know what he's talking about? Money and possessions, your stuff. He calls that very little, not the big stuff. The world says that's the big stuff. Jesus says, hey, if you can handle money and possessions for the kingdom, I got big things for you in these eternal dwellings. In verse 11, he talks about unrighteous wealth, again, which doesn't mean wicked money. It just means secular money. It just means everyday money that you're used to using. If you've been faithful with that, then you might be faithful with true riches. But if you're not faithful with the lesser, then why should you think you have any business with the greater? Some of us think that if we had more, then we'd give more. If I only made X amount, then of course I'd begin to give to others and to my church. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. People don't learn to be generous only once they have a little more. They have the same heart they had when they were poor. They only now have with riches more temptations. I know of one dear lady in this church who shares some of her food stamps with her needy neighbors. That's humbling. Now, none of this means that we should all give the same amount. The Bible doesn't even give a required percentage in these, these New Testament days. But it does give principles for all of us that we give generously and worshipfully and happily and sacrificially and routinely. 
Verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? All that we have in this life, all that you own, all that you earn, all that is talent and ability and skill, all of that is not only a gift from God. The Bible does say that, that it's a gift. It uses that word gift. It's all a gift. That'd be a good place to start to just think in terms of everything's a gift, but it's not only a gift. The Bible also talks about everything we have not being ours, but God's. It speaks of stewardship. We are stewards. We are managers of the master's resources. We've been entrusted with those resources to put them to use for the master's good. So we should do it faithfully. And we should do it strategically and creatively and wisely effectively, shrewdly. And we should do it in an undistracted, undivided way because of verse 13. No servant can serve two masters for he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God and money can coexist in your life. In fact, they do. But they can't coexist without one in service to the other, without one being at the steering wheel, without one being the master and the other being the servant. Everything you have, everything you are, every bit of ability and skill that you have is not only a gift from God, it's a stewardship. It's his, and he gave it to you. And that means that everything in your life is either a tool for him and his purposes, or it's an idol. It's either a tool for his glory, or it's an idol for our own glory. I wonder if some are here today who would hear all that, and you'd be tempted to just smirk, to shake your head, to laugh, to think, you silly Christians, you really are just what I thought, silly. I can imagine a skeptic hearing all this and thinking to myself and thinking to themselves, I'd rather go join the clever criminals than you people with this pie in the sky, my money is God's money kind of stuff. Well, you're not alone. In fact, that's what happens next in our passage. People ridicule Jesus. We come to this, thirdly, appointed repudiation. Appointed repudiation. Really, we could call it a mutual repudiation between two parties. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, you probably know they were committed and strict in their religious performance. But they were hypocrites. They were lovers of money. And so they hated what Jesus 
had been saying about money. They ridiculed him and probably ridiculed him because he was poor. You see, they had a certain theology of money, not totally unlike the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers of today. The Pharisees believed that wealth was a mark of blessing in one's life because of their obedience. The faith preachers say that the blessing is there because of your great faith or because you gave a lot. But very similarly, these Pharisees thought it was obedience that garnered financial blessing. And so the more holy one was, the more financially blessed he should be. And this is how they justified themselves before men. Oh, they gave to the poor like they're supposed to do. But the rest... They hoarded it. They showed it off. It was the mark of their holiness and their blessing from God. But Jesus couldn't disagree more. Jesus says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These aren't kind of close. You don't need just a little bit of a tweak To get to Jesus' way of thinking about your stuff is total upside down, different ends of the polarity. The Pharisees ridiculed Jesus, and they shouldn't have. I mean, this parable was really, really good for them. It was told to the disciples, yes, but it was in the hearing of the Pharisees, and they are ones that responded to it. But oh, how they needed it. Because they had severely mismanaged their master's resources, not least the people of Israel that they didn't care for. They cared for themselves. And the master was saying to them, time's up. You're caught. You've mismanaged my funds. And there's this brief moment where they could be shrewd if they would do something quick and radical and in their best interests. But they wouldn't. But some did. You see, you don't have to repudiate Jesus today, and you don't have to be repudiated by Jesus. Let me show you one more verse, verse 16. We didn't read it earlier, but look down in your Bibles if they're still open. In the middle of verse 16, it says, The good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Of course, we, don't, we know that doesn't mean everyone. The Pharisees weren't. But practically, outside of them, so many were is what it means. So many were forcing their way into the kingdom. Tax collectors, sinners, eating with Jesus. Prodigals coming home. Lost coins found. They're all forcing their way into the kingdom. Not that they have to force their way in or you know, find a back door and sneak their way in or muscle their way in. No, it's like, it's like little girls showing up to a Beatles concert and they're trying to push through the door that's not big enough for the crowd that's, that's showing up. That's the picture of entering the kingdom of God. You enter free and come in. And you might find yourself shoulder to shoulder and shoulder to shoulder with others that one day you will be 
friends in heaven with. I wonder, would today be a day where by God's grace, for the first time, you would find yourself forced in to the kingdom because you've heard this morning, the gospel has been preached to you, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news that Jesus died in the place for sinners and was raised on the third day so that if you believe in that, you trust in that, that's your hope, that's what you're, you're leaning on, then you're in. You become his friend. You're reconciled to him. Heaven is your future. And perhaps one day, friends will be there waiting for you when you enter in. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this gospel should lead to a new and wonderful outlook on your work, on your money, on your life, on eternity, on time, on money and stuff, and how you view others, and how you view your church, and how you view your mission in this world, no matter what your job is. This gospel and this heavenly hope should give us a new and wonderful outlook on strategy and shrewdness for Jesus' sake. So let's pray. Yes, Lord, give us more shrewdness. We thank you for what we see in this church. We thank you for those who are great examples in being shrewd for your ways in this world. Make us all more shrewd like this. Lord, keep us from sin while we're also growing in our shrewdness. And Lord, we pray that Jesus today would be a friend of sinners in this room, perhaps for some for the very first time. We pray as we sing this song that all of us would be able to sing it in truth and in faith and it truly reflect our hearts and our lives and our belief. May it be so for Jesus' sake. Amen.